interesting because for the first you know few years of my life that I remember getting birthday cards, I got some birthday cards from my parents' hippie friends that said things like, sending you birthday happiness on your birthday. Like, you know, you get the card and it says, sending you birthday happiness on your birthday, and you open it up and you're like... Like, birthday happiness is not buying me a toy at the toy store. You know, where's the check? You know, but there's so many other things about being the first. And being the first child also is a little bit vindictive as it means that you mess up everything else for your younger siblings. Meaning that when I was in high school, I would venture to say that 80% of my interactions with my parents were confrontational. So that meant that my brother didn't get to do anything when he was in middle school when I was in high school. Do you know why? Because after your parents get done dealing with the oldest, they're not happy. And they're not happy. And you've just walked in and told them that you made a whatever on this grade or that you didn't come in at curfew or whatever like that. And you have this blow up. And then there's your brother getting ready to ask if he can go to the middle school dance. You know, and they're incredibly angry and they don't want to hear anything that he has to say. And so he, then he's afraid and he doesn't ask them. And it's a little bit like you know, the next person in line after the no soup for you soup Nazi in, in uh, you know, Seinfeld, and they, he's just blown up at someone, and you're the next person standing there in line going. And I think often we think of God that way. We've got to catch God on a good day. Uh, we've got to catch God on some day where the, that we haven't just sinned or done something that we're embarrassed about. Then we can pray, then we can ask him, because it, really God is this temperamental, placable person that we need to kind of like get a hold of. And if we're on a good day and everything's okay and we've done well and the people we know are doing well, then we might be able to ask God for something. But that's not how God is. And so Christ, as he's continuing and we're kind of wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, begins not only to talk to us about how we pray, but also what do we believe about the character of God, who he is, what he's like. And so when we come to this text, you kind of think to yourself, we've just gotten done in in, in 7, 1 through 6, talking about not judging people, but when we judge, judging correctly. And then it seems like we get this hard right-hand turn, and we all of a sudden we start talking about prayer. And the next thing you knew, the the golden rule is thrown in there. And then then at the very end, it's kind of like the uniqueness of the gospel and the the onlyness of Christ and salvation and entering God's kingdom through no other way than Jesus. And you're kind of like, man, are these things three random things, or are they actually the next point and the next point and the culmination of what he's been teaching Because I would say that they actually are. These are all a continuation of the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is simply this. Are you going to trust only in God? Are you going to trust only in God and govern yourself accordingly? Or are you going to try to govern yourself accordingly and hope to manipulate or get leverage over God and other people? So when we jump in here to the text, let's start start here with... With, we're here in 7-7, seven, seven, so this is always a great one to remember. 7-7, seven, seven, Matthew 7-7, seven, seven, ask, seek, knock. And it's one of those ones that we remember. When we look at the text, asking, looking, seeking, and knocking, they would have all been very familiar Jewish metaphors for prayer. Many of the Jewish rabbis taught about prayer as a knocking, this knocking. But notice that all of these as a metaphor for prayer are all in the present tense. Especially, I love this in, in the NLT, it just says it, keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. And it's this kind of a continual act. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, because of what you know about God, this is what we do. What you know about God, that God is good, that God is love, that God hears us, what do we do? 
We keep on asking. We do what we know to do based on what God has revealed to us and what God has told us. And then he says again as well, he says, because of what we believe about God, we do what we know to do and we pursue him. And then we also have to remember that this verse 7, this asking and seeking and knocking, is invariably tied to verses 1 through 6. This is about about asking for discernment. This is about asking for God's presence. This is about asking for God's power and God's understanding because we've just gotten done talking about when you live in this world, don't be a judgmental person, but as you live in this world, don't cast your pearls before swine. When you judge, judge correctly. When you want to discern, discern correctly with self-introspection, but also correct godly judgment. And so he's saying as you do this, Ask God for help about how you do that. And remember that the greatest gift that God can give us is not something but someone, and that is himself. I'm going to say that one more time. The greatest thing that God can give us is not something, but it's someone. And it's who he is. It's his himself. It's his presence. And so when we get to verse 8, verse 8 then is, Seek because an answer will be given to you. God doesn't hide from us. Even, even when we hear in the Psalms, David will complain, God, why have you hidden your face from me? But then he will turn back around and say, but I know that you are there for me and your presence is revealed in the power of who you are and the character of your glory. And so the, God doesn't hide himself from us and he gives us the best gift of all, which is himself. And so when we look at James 1, 5, and we look at 1 Kings 3, 5, we see again, ask and God will give you wisdom. Ask when God will give you the discernment through the power of his presence. And here is a hard thing that we need to remember about this verse 8. In scripture, God may promise to specific people health, wealth, and success, but God never gives a banner promise to everyone. You will be healthy, you will be wealthy, and you'll be successful. It's just not in the Bible. We remember from John last week, Jesus actually promises and he says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's, that's a promise. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So the best gift that God can give us is not something, but it's his presence, it's himself. And so in verses 9 through 11, he then kind of gives you this by way of contrast. So by way of contrast, he says then, how do you evil people treat your children? You, you evil people, and, and we kind of just recoil, evil? Yes, well, compared to God... We're evil, and I'm not talking about our sanctification in Christ. I'm just talking about in comparison to the holy, 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 the one who is set apart, set apart, set apart. So he says, so how do you who are sinful know how to treat your children? Because I want to draw a comparison between how you treat your children and then in turn what you then inherently believe about God. What you inherently believe about God. Because what he says is because how you treat your children, this reflects on how you see God. And so in verses 9 through 11, he's inviting you to to a debate or to a question session. And he says, how do you see God? Do you see God as stingy? Do you see God as moody? Do, Do you have to catch God on a good day? Do you have to catch God when he's not feeling bad, when he's not preoccupied with this? Do you have to catch God when maybe you've been free of sin and now you feel like you can ask him something? Is that how God is? Is God really that movable? And you would do well to go back and actually look in chapter 6 and look, about, look at verses 31, 32, and 33 to where he says, don't you understand that the pagans chase after these things? And so in the same way God's, in the same way Jesus is saying, do you think God is like these pagan gods? 
that are running around doing all these different kind of things that they are in bad moods and they get frustrated and they get upset and they get upset with each other and they get jealous and all these kind of things. Do you think that God is like that? Or do you believe that God the Father is good? That he is not movable or swayable by our sin or by our emotions. What do you then believe about God? Do you believe that he is good? Does God really love you more than you love yourself? Does God really love you better than you could love yourself? And then we get to verse 12, and you think again that verse 12 is somehow kind of just thrown in here. And we know that in many other cultures, the golden rule exists. And one of the things that teachers would say about the golden rule is that Christ is one of the people who takes it and doesn't spin it in the negative. Don't do, he, he doesn't say, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want to have done to you, which is how most cultures see it. But Jesus puts it in the positive, do unto others what you would have done unto you. But this again is going back and is a reflection on verses 1 through 6. In the way that you judge people, do it in a way that you would want to be judged. Do it in a way that you would want to be evaluated. In the way that you treat people. And we got to remember that the reason that this comes right here in the middle of this is that when we as Christians live out this principle, we're not just saying we have a principle and it's a principle and an entity surviving in and of itself over here. We say this is our guiding principle by how we live. It's not the gospel. It's not what saves us, but it is the principle by how which we are known in this world as people who love Jesus Christ, as who are his disciples. And the beauty of the golden rule is that actually when we love others the way that we would want to be loved ourselves, it releases God's love in our lives. In the same way, when you have a child, when you have a baby, all of a sudden this part of you that you did not know existed that had this, this extra ventricle or atrial <laughs> in your heart opens up and you go, I did not know that I had this capacity for extra love in this way that, well, in the same way, when we love others as we would want to be loved is when we love others as Christ loved us, it opens up and releases God's love to work. And we go from being simply a vessel that stores God's love to a conduit that shares God's love in our life. And so it's not just a principle but it's what Christ's disciples live out. It's a reflection of chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. But then verses 13 through 14 are actually a culmination and a summation of the Sermon on the Mount, of Christ's teaching. And so what we've got to remember is verses 13 through 14, this narrow way, this narrow gate. They are about the singularity of salvation that is found in Christ. Jesus would say this in John 14, 6. He would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then I love this, you get this qualifier. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's this singularity, this I am it. Thank you so much, Parker. You're the best. And then you get John 10, 9. John 10, 9, Jesus comes out and he says once again, and you, you've, got to, you've got to connect 10, 9 here with this. If you have your own Bible, write in it. If you have the pew Bible, write in that one too. It's okay. John 10, 9, Jesus literally says, I am the gate. So it's, it's not, this isn't some poetic, you know, allusion to something. He's saying, I'm telling you about eternity. I'm telling you about salvation. In John 10, 9, he says, listen, I am the gate. I am the gate. And so they are really these verses. They're the summation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so the entire Sermon on the Mount is this. You can either trust Jesus' righteousness and live accordingly So this is it. Either trust Jesus' righteousness and live accordingly, or try to trust in your own righteousness and find death. Because you get this, who Jesus is talking to, Jesus is talking to two sets of people. Both think that they are righteous. 
One is going to pursue their righteousness by putting their trust in the one that God has already declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And they're going to go, I can't be righteous. There are all these ways that occur to me that seem to be right, but they are incorrect. I'm going to put my faith and trust in the singularity of the one who has been called righteous by God, who is Jesus Christ. Everyone else, that's every other way. That's every other road, every other way, every other way that they want to go. They're going to put their trust in their own righteousness, in their ability to somehow live well enough to earn God's salvation. And Jesus says, that way is very broad. You know why? Because it's every other way but me. And remember, a broad gate is really no gate at all. A broad gate is no gate at all. Anybody can find a broad gate because it's really not a gate. It's kind of like if there is a 100,000 foot wide hole in the fence, we would say that's a hole in the fence, not a gate. But if there is one single small little gate, we would go, oh, there's the gate. And so he's saying every other way, but trusting in my righteousness and trusting in what I have done and not trusting in your own is the way that you've got to go if you want life and salvation. So this, these three seemingly different things actually all tie together as Jesus is summing up his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It's either every other way or it is my way, which is the only true way. So let me tell you what you're going to miss at uh, the 11 o'clock traditional service. For the first time in my tenure here at Corinth, and I'm guessing maybe the first time ever at Corinth, we're going to start off the sermon with a good rock song, uh, sung in a rock style, uh, because we couldn't resist. So this is the song. Have we got it back there? There we go. ACDC. So I put the words on the screen for you, but the, the song is Highway to Hell, and we just couldn't resist for the connection with this particular passage. And uh, so, let me turn this on here. Is this working for me? Oh yeah, there we go. So the, 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 the big problem with the song Highway to Hell, it's a song that ACDC wrote about the long trek from east to west across Australia, uh, through the desert, or being on the road. And some of you are much bigger rock fans than I am, so I have to kind of look up all this stuff, right? But uh, it ends at a pub down in Perth, Australia, this, this long road, and there's a steep descent, and a lot of people lost their lives. And so the highway to hell was almost literally about the end of that road when a lot of people died. But still, <clears throat> the risk and the fun of doing all this, living easy, living free. And I share that story with you not because I think as I was taught as a teenager that you know rock and roll music is itself the highway to hell. That's not my point. My point is rather that the, the quest for, for pleasure and, and love and greed and fame in so many different areas, and we see it in the news almost every day in some field or another, is itself the highway to hell. The, 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 the wide road that everybody thinks is really going to give you what you want is the highway to hell. So from there, uh, I, I was, uh, for most of my sermons on the, the Sermon on the Mount, I have been saying over and over again that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is that all of this is impossible. You can't do this. Jesus is deliberately setting a standard that you can't reach. And uh, so I had my sermon written for today, a slightly different direction. I get an email from Kevin. Uh, He knows what I'm getting ready to say. And he goes, the theme of this passage is, I'm quoting from Kevin now, Jesus has just described this way of life, and he talks about the details, and he says, the big idea is that Jesus says this life is possible. 
I'm going, Kevin, what are you thinking here? I've been saying all along it was impossible. But the truth is it feeds to exactly into what I was going to say today because Jesus has been setting this standard high and what we get to at the end of the sermon is sort of three different summary statements, uh, the, the conclusion of which is, look, this, the next thing is possible. So Kevin wasn't saying like you can live perfectly in this life. He's saying that you can make strides toward it, and we experience this every day. And he goes on to talk about people like Christine in our video, people being reconciled to each other, confessing sins of racism or, or lust or restoration. The kingdom of God is coming right now through Jesus, and this beautiful life Jesus describes is possible in Jesus, and we're living that together in, his, in the church by grace. But what strikes me about these three parts of today's scripture passage is that in all of them, Jesus takes this very complicated, impossible life he's been describing and says, let's just boil it down to the very simple truth. Let let, let me tell you what is possible in terms of your next step. And so I'm going to go back through the passage that Pastor Paul did a little bit more quickly um, uh, just to, to sort of summarize what I mean. So there are three parts of this possible life. The first has to do with prayer. And when Jesus says, keep on asking, and you will receive, keep on seeking, and you will find, keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you, almost every one of us goes to prayers that were not answered. It's like, this doesn't work for me. And Jesus is saying, everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And he goes on to give this illustration. This is a picture of the African catfish that lives in the Sea of Galilee that may have been what Jesus was referring to when he said, what, what father would give his son a snake if, and say, ha, 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 I tricked you. You thought you were getting this African catfish, but I'm really giving you a snake. Fathers don't do that. And so Jesus says, of course not. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So we want to know how this works. Like, what's the formula for getting God to do what I want to do? And Jesus says, that's so far above your pay grade. Like, it's not for you to figure out the connection of how prayer works. This is a summary statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because what Jesus is specifically assuming that you will pray about is not your Porsche, not your, you know, model's body, not your dream job. What Jesus is assuming you will pray about is, how do I do all of this? How do I live in the kingdom in this impossible way that Jesus describes? And and how do I make sure that my prayers are going to be answered? And Jesus says, it's not about that. The simple thing for you to do, if you're going to keep it simple, is just keep praying. That's your part. God's part is to do whatever he he wants to do to give you the good gifts that he wants to give. You do your part, distinguish between your part and God's part. Your part is just to keep praying. That's very possible. I can do that. I can't figure out everything that needs to be done, but I can do the next thing, which is to keep praying. And why? Because of who the Heavenly Father is. Like, so prayer in all of its forms simply brings me a deeper, greater intimacy with the Lord. And is that enough for me to say, this is the good gift that I really need? So Jesus, again, is summarizing the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's already talked about prayer. He taught the Lord's Prayer. He taught you not to pray in public and so forth. And now as he comes back to the end, he's going like, this is it, folks. Just keep praying. That's your part. When you keep praying, you will get to know God better. You will trust him more. He will be enough for you. Just keep praying. The second part of this is to keep doing. 
And so again, Jesus gives you another sort of conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. He's given you lots of requirements, lots of things. In fact, his, his standards go much, so much deeper and further than the standards of the scribes and Pharisees. And the reason is they have a checklist. It happens to be 613 commands long, but it's like, if you keep all of this, you're good. And Jesus says, don't go by the checklist, go even deeper than that. And we're saying, like, what am I supposed to do about that? And Jesus says, look... Here's the summary. Here's the thing that you can do. Now, this is called the Golden Rule because of an emperor by the name of Alexander Severus in the 3rd century who, according to tradition, inscribed it in gold. He became fascinated with the uh, Golden Rule, inscribed it in gold on the wall. There's no archaeological evidence for that, but that's what we think happened. So if you're wondering where it got the name, that's where it got the name. But as Pastor Paul said, the, the, the Golden Rule is not unique to Jesus. He didn't coin it. He wasn't the first to say it. Some people say he was the first to say it positively. I'm not even sure the evidence supports that. Everybody from Confucius to to Hillel to Muhammad said the golden rule in some form or another before or after Jesus. So why is Jesus giving us something that is really common human wisdom and knowledge? Well, Jesus redefines it in a couple of different ways. First of all, he gives us the impossible again, everything that you want people to be doing, so you also are to be doing to them. But then he also reminds us that this is really the summary of what he's been saying. Now, the reason it's impossible, a guy by the name of Harry Gensler has written more about the golden rule maybe than anyone else. And Harry Gensler says, this is not as simple as it looks. So uh, he tells a story about the monkey and the fish. When the flood came, the monkey said, what I need to do is get up in the tree. And so if I'm going to do to others what I would have them do to me, I'm going to pick up the fish and pull him into the tree as well, which doesn't work very well if you're the fish, right? So is that what the golden rule means, that you're just supposed to do what you would want somebody to do to you? And the answer is no, the golden rule really is applying to switching places. But it's still kind of complex, it's complicated. And yet what Jesus is saying is, listen, let me remind you that uh, this is a summary of all of my Sermon on the Mount. So when it gets too complicated for you, and you're going like all that stuff about, you know, not lusting and loving your enemies and being poor in spirit and praying the right way and with the right motive and not in front of people and not worrying and not laying up treasures and not judging people. I can't keep all that straight. Jesus says, listen, the next thing, the summary of all that I've said to you is this one thing. So you, you, don't, you may not know everything to do, but you know the next thing to do. And the next thing to do is to imagine yourself switching places with another person and say, what would I want done? This is my ethic. And furthermore, he summarizes by saying this is actually what the Old Testament teaches as well. This is the law of the prophet. This is the law and the prophet. So again, when we get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we're thinking this is so complicated, so much to do, it's impossible. Jesus says, no, there's one thing that's possible. Just imagine what the next thing to do is for someone who's close to you that you would want done if you were in their places and do that. That's the golden rule. So keep it simple. And then finally, Jesus gets to this last part, and he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But, switch, there we go. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Pastor Paul and I both listened. He found it first and sent it to me, a sermon by one of our favorite preachers, Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It's one of those times where I'm going, like, I really just should shut up and play the tape. Like, he says this so well, so 
you can go look for it yourself. But one of the things that Tim Keller says about this passage is uh, that the broad way is the way to narrowness and the narrow way is the way to spaciousness. This is what Jesus is saying because he, he acknowledges, he uses a word that nobody likes. Nobody likes to be in a narrow place. Whether you are you know, psychologically diagnosed with claustrophobia or not, it doesn't really matter. Nobody likes to be squished. Nobody likes to be in a narrow place. I was thinking there is a, there's about a 30 by 30 um, little uh, tube that run, a channel that runs from the back of the sanctuary, isn't it about 30 by 30, John, that runs underneath the floor here that can get you all the way back over there, all the way up to the organ. And I've known people who wanted to do that. I just happen to not be one of them. I don't like to be narrow in those places like that. So why does Jesus use a word that is deliberately a word that is sort of off-putting? So in our world and in, in the world of Jesus, and even in the Bible, the word narrow is a negative word. And so here Jesus says, listen, the way to get to the wide place that you really long for is really a narrow road. And it is the narrow road of Jesus. And so every one of these alternatives that Pastor Paul talked about that think they're going to lead you to like everybody can, can, uh, can be in, like why would we judge someone else's faith and tell them they have to come to Jesus? The reason is that when you choose that wide road, it is really a wide road on some level or another of performance. And any time it's about performance, that I'm good enough, that my religion is good enough, or whatever, that feels like a very, a very wide and welcoming way. But in the end, if everything is okay, if every belief is okay, then at the end of that, it really leads to self-destruction and it leads to performance because I can never really know that I'm good enough. But when you enter through the narrow gate of Jesus who has done everything necessary and everything possible for you to have eternal life, then Jesus opens wide the door into that place of life and joy and health and eternity that only he can bring. So uh, the broad way is the way to narrowness. It's the way that will destroy you, and the narrow way is the way to spaciousness. So again, the bottom line of all of this is just that we, we continue to say, like, well, Lord, what about so-and-so? I've shared this quote with you before uh, from a little tract called Others May, You Cannot. It's been several years since I did. But this is, the, this is what has kept me going all the years trying to live a narrow way, sometimes with uh, different levels of success. But uh, G.D. Watson, this tract, said, If God has called you to be really like Jesus, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility and put upon you such demands of obedience that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians, and in many ways he will seem to let other people do things that he will not let you do. And you say, Jesus, why would you do that for me? Because I know that your deepest, greatest fulfillment will be in an intimacy with you in a life of pursuit of holiness. So you say, I can't do that. It's impossible for me. And Jesus says, listen, you don't have to think about the impossibility of doing it all at once, but do the next right thing. Do the next thing that shows that you choose this narrow gate. You choose to trust in me, and you choose to follow me down this narrow road because at the end of, the, of that, at the other end of that, is all of the spaciousness and life and joy that you deeply long for. So we're not going to uh, finish the sermon at 11 traditional, uh, just getting people thinking about the rock song. There's a gospel song called The Highway to Heaven. Do you guys know this? It's a highway to heaven. I figure there might be a few people who know it. 
So just the chorus. Peter, can you get us started? And we're just going to sing just the chorus of this, then we'll get into our closing hymn. It's a highway to heaven. None can walk up there but the pure in heart. It's a highway to heaven. I'm walking up the king's highway. Everybody? It's a highway to heaven. None can walk up there but the pure in heart. It's a highway to heaven. Walking up the king's highway. So when you get overwhelmed with the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount, just keep it simple. Do the next thing. Keep praying. Keep doing as you would have done to you. And keep choosing the narrow way.